0: Let me ask you a question this morning. I'm just going to jump right into this message, Uh, and it's a thought question. If you want to answer out loud, that's fine. How long did Adam and Eve live in Eden before they blew it? How long do you think they were in the garden before the scene of Genesis 3 when Satan appears and Eve is deceived and Adam right along with her they both sin and rebel against God I wonder how long do you think that was that they were there it it had to be before Cain and Abel were born I'll just tell you this the scripture doesn't tell us it doesn't spell it out for us but God made them placed them in the perfect world the perfect garden and there at the end of chapter 1 Genesis 131 it says that God looked at what he had done and he said about it remember it is very good so that was before they messed up that was Genesis 131 Adam and Eve had the perfect life think about this before they sinned anytime that Eve You know, was plagued with feelings of insecurity like sometimes wives get in a marriage. Adam could reassure her, Eve, you are the only woman in the world for me. (laughs) It was perfect. And life on earth was so perfect and so innocent and so pure that they both were naked and there was no shame in that. And I will shamelessly say that's what Scripture tells us. Genesis 2, verse 25, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now think about that carefully. What a great life. No laundry. No worrying about getting salsa on your shirt or grass stains on your jeans. No, honey, go back and change that. It doesn't match. No worrying about going up a size because there are no sizes, right? And Adam and Eve lived in perfect fellowship with each other in that relationship in the perfect world. But do you remember then how they both chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? How they believed the lie. Do you remember how they ate? And it says, chapter 3, verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened. And do you remember then what it says in the next sentence? They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now that's a strange way not to draw attention to yourself, but their once perfect relationship that they had lived in was now marred by shame. And the first thing that they did about that was they covered themselves before each other because their relationship now had a barrier in it, but it doesn't stop there. They hear God coming in the garden, so what do they do? They hide themselves. Because not only has their relationship with each other now been marred, but their relationship with God has a problem. And as God explained to Adam and Eve, how their sin has stained creation. He also explained to them that one of the outcomes of that is that the husband and wife relationship in some way is altered now. The next chapter, chapter 4, we find their two sons, Cain and Abel, coming to offer sacrifices to God. They are working on their relationship to God in some way, but Cain's Sacrifice, remember, comes up short in God's eyes, and in a fit of rage, he murders his brother. Now, some of you have mentioned to me over the years about family drama, tension at home. Can you imagine the awkwardness, the family drama that was created when Cain killed his brother? By the time of Noah, people have become so distant from God that God announces his plan to start all over. Of all the people on the face of the earth, there is a faithful man that God chooses to do this through. That is the person of Noah. And he starts the whole thing over through him. Clean slate. So Noah and his family come off the ark, repopulate the earth. It starts all over. And we have this scene of humanity at a place called Babel. God wants them to disperse, spread out, fill the earth. That had been the command from the beginning, and they're not doing it. And, and so God splits them up. He changes their relationship with one another again. How? Language. He confuses their language. Have you ever noticed how when there are language barriers, like between hearing people and deaf people, that creates a barriers in relationship. I speak man, my wife speaks woman. Sometimes that's a challenge, those language barriers. Clear up to the end of the Old Testament, people having these struggles in relationship to one another, clear up to the end of the Old Testament, God gives These finishing words at the last book, at the end of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. It's about to sign off for 400 years. There won't be a recorded word from God. And he ends it by saying these things through Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. What is God talking about? He's talking about strained relationships again. History is the story of broken relationships in a broken world between God and people and of people with each other. Damaged, challenging relationships. And let me tell you something this morning. Rewriting history to say what happened isn't really what happened. That's not how you fix that. Separating people into groups and positioning them against each other. That's not how you fix that. Trying to set one kind of person or group of people ahead of another group of people, that's not how you fix those broken relationships between people. All along, God has had the plan that fixes it. All along, God has had the plan to restore broken relationships. That is what the cross is all about. If you want to explain why the Son of God becomes a human being and subjects himself to death on a Roman cross, consider it in that context. It is all about restoring those damaged relationships. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. I'd encourage you to open up your Bibles to that. I'm going to be reading that this morning. Chapter 2, verse 14 of Ephesians. I'm going to be reading it from a different translation than what I usually use. It's called the simple English version. I just thought that it did a very good job of accurately and simply saying what these verses say. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Christ himself is our peace. He has made Jews and non-Jews one. He used his own body to break down the fence of hate, which separated them. Christ canceled the law, which had commands in strict orders. He wanted to create one new man from two, making peace between them. Then he could make them friends of God with one body through the cross. He used the cross to kill hate. When Jesus came, he preached Peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Because through Christ, both Jews and non-Jews have a way to get to the Father by one Spirit. If you're interested in growing up in Jesus, if you're interested in reaching for Jesus, in building up your spiritual walk, then you're interested in building up and restoring relationships. Jesus died for the purpose of restoring relationships. That's it in a nutshell this morning. The mission of the cross was the restoration of those broken relationships, and that mission has been passed along to you and me, the church. That means when we're reaching for Jesus, what we really are doing is seeing how we can restore broken people and their broken relationships. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 18. Paul says, "All this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Real quick, what's that word about? It simply means to make friendly again. Where a relationship is damaged and distant, it's made friendly again. God has given that to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So without apology today, that's what I want to point us to. I want to point you and me together to the necessity of working on relationships this is a part of life in the Central Christian Church family that we just cannot neglect. We have to make relationships a priority in the faith community. Can I get a okay on that? Because if not, then you're not going to like this truck ride. We're, that's where we're going. All right. Here's why this is important. I've got a, a few reasons for us to look at this morning. Number one is because life demands it. <laughs> Life demands that we give attention to relationships. Do you remember being in first grade and going on field trips? And maybe there was a rope and you all had to hold on to it or something like that. Do you remember uh, church camp and swim time and like every 15 minutes, whoop, buddy check! And everybody had to get out of the pool and you had to be with your pool buddy. Anybody else remember that? There had to be a buddy. Why those things? Because the world is a big place, and by ourselves, especially when we're little people, it's easy to get lost out there. We do not yet live in heaven. It's a jungle out there. And so we know that there needs to be a buddy system. That's very practical. Stu Weber, in his book, Tender Warrior, in 1967, says, We were at war with Vietnam, and there I was at the U.S. Army Ranger School at Fort Benning, Georgia. It was brutal. I can still hear the raspy voice of the sergeant. We are here to save your lives. We're going to see to it that you overcome all your natural fears. We're going to show you just how much incredible stress the human mind and body can endure. And when we're finished with you, you will be the U.S. Army's best. That's my best impersonation of a sergeant. Then, before he dismissed the formation, he announced our first assignment. We steeled ourselves for something really tough, like running 10 miles in full battle gear or rappelling down a sheer cliff. Instead, he told us to find a buddy. Find yourself a ranger buddy, he growled. You will stick together. You will never leave each other. You will encourage each other and as necessary, you will carry each other. It was the army's way of saying difficult assignments require a friend. Together is better. Who's your ranger buddy? Hmm. Martin Luther said no man should be alone when he opposes Satan. The church and the ministry of the word were instituted for this purpose that hands may be joined together and one may help another. If the prayer of one doesn't help, the prayer of another will. Throughout history, wise men of faith have understood that we need in this walk of faith a buddy. Everyone needs a buddy because it is a jungle out there. I need a buddy. I need a buddy not just because of how it is out there and life demands it. I also need a buddy because of what I am like. I need it. There is a certain power in two things that come from this buddy system. One is the power of accountability. Some years back, Senator Bill Bradley was talking about Television, and he said the answer to bad television is not censorship, but more citizenship in the corporate boardroom and more active families who will turn off the trash, boycott the sponsors, and tell the executives that you hold them personally responsible for making money from glorifying violence and human degradation. Accountability is what he was talking about. Why do teachers test over what they have taught you? Why do companies require you to turn in an accounting of your expenses? Why do parents look at their children and say, did you clean your room? Why do many of you at work have someone over you at work who is called your supervisor? It's because in all of those different realms of life, having accountability helps us do better. I know that if I'm accountable for my actions, it helps me make better choices. Sometimes when you're on the phone, as, as a real person is preparing to come on and speak to you after you've pushed all the buttons, there might be a voice that says, this call is being recorded for quality purposes. That means I'm going to be more careful, maybe, about what I say. If I'm being videoed, I might be more careful about how I look. If I know there's an evaluation down the road, I will be more deliberate about how I will work. There is help and there is power in a relationship that holds me accountable. I know that I'm going to have to answer for what I do. If I do that, it's gonna help me make a right choice. So this buddy system, I need it because of how I am. How about you? Accountability is a powerful thing. But there's more than that. There is also a certain power that comes through the encouragement of someone alongside us. Not just to keep me from bad choices, but also to be one more reason to make good choices. We work better when there is a person working hard next to us, don't we? When there is somebody alongside you working, you tend to work better. Proverbs 27, 17 says that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And I can look back and I can see how my whole life has been encouraged by the relationships that I have had over the years with faithful servants of the Lord, people who did a good job. I can't help but think of Willard Kelly. You all know many of you Willard much better than I, but I also remember that even before coming here, I heard from him and received encouragement from him. Someone who had faithfully invested himself, encouraging me to do a good job. If you're one of those people that has been like that to me, thank you. You know who you are. I'm helped by somebody who reminds me of God's truth. I'm encouraged by people who share their lives, who show what that looks like, who show that it can be done. So there are those two things that help me because of how I am. I need accountability and I need encouragement. How about you? There's power in that. And that's one of the reasons that God puts us together in his family, in this relationship that we have. Here's another reason that we need to focus attention on relationships, and that's not only uh, those other two, but that because this isn't it. <laughs> where you and I live right now, this isn't all there is. I'm so glad for that. I think about the movie Home Alone, where Kevin, the main character, eight years old, has been you know, banished to the, the attic because he got in trouble. And he says how crummy it is to live with his crummy family. And he says, when I grow up and get married, I'm living alone. <laughs> so if you're one of those people who just doesn't like being around people, have you thought about this? Our great hope Our great hope is to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus and each other. I thought of this story that I had read from Theodore Roosevelt's autobiography. I love it. You know, before he was president, he was vice president. Before he was vice president, he did a lot of things. One of those was he was the police commissioner of New York. Wish that we could resurrect him and put him back in that spot. He tells this story of how there was a Jew hating preacher from Berlin, Hermann Alwart. He was going to come to New York and stir up hatred against the Jews. Free speech. Several from the Jewish community asked Roosevelt if they would stop this guy from coming to speak. He said that wouldn't be right. Listen to what he writes about this. The proper thing to do was to make him ridiculous. Accordingly, I detailed for his protection a Jew sergeant and a score or two of Jew policemen. He made his harangue against the Jews under the active protection of some 40 policemen, every one of them a Jew. It was the most effective possible answer, and incidentally, it was an object lesson to our people whose greatest need it is to learn that there must be no division by class hatred, whether this hatred be that of creed against creed, nationality against nationality, section against section, or men of one social and industrial condition against men of another social and industrial condition. I love that story. Make him ridiculous. Christian people ought to be ahead of the game on this feature of life. Is there somebody you're carrying a grudge against? Is there somebody who rubs you the wrong way, drives you up the wall? Somebody uh, who makes the word relationship sound more like slow boat on the way to China with them? Do you know a person like that? Is there a person with whom you have a strained relationship it may go back for years to some incidents so far removed that you don't even remember a lot of the details but it's this person that you've got a problem with and so it's a person that you avoid you never speak to him or her as i understand it if that's the case and you think about that person and you should be right now you've got one of two options about the way that you treat him or her You either plan on spending eternity with that person in heaven, or you wish that one of you wouldn't be there. Think about that. If you can't stand somebody here and now, why should you be able to stand them better forever? Let me tell you, God has a great sense of humor. He'll probably give you a house right next to that person in heaven. I hope so. may as well get it together now we ought to be good at this shouldn't we i didn't get a long amen on that one we ought to be good at this all right here's another reason number four why we should focus attention on relationships and that is because jesus died for it and if that doesn't make it seem important in our eyes i don't know what else can I'm sure that Jesus wants his people to have relationships with each other because it's what he taught, it's what he prayed for, it's what he worked for, and it's what he died for. It's laid on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is wrestling in prayer as he fills the imminent weight of the sin of the world coming upon him, and he will die. And John records in chapter 17 these words in this prayer that Jesus prayed. He says, I do not ask For these only, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus wants unity among his people, healthy relationships. And the goal of that is that the rest of the world will look in on that and believe who he is they'll have a restored relationship with God. You see, the way I relate to you shows either my care or my apathy toward Jesus. For us to do the Lord's work, we in the church have to get along with each other. When Jesus left the earth, he left the church to do his work. There isn't another plan. There's still a lot more people who've never even heard of Jesus. And so you and I need to rub elbows with one another sometimes. We've got to be together in this thing. John says in 1 John chapter 4, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, the world can see God when we get it right. Jesus died for this. And I couldn't do that without you. He's counting on all of us. We've got to make relationships a priority in Central Christian Church, in the Central Christian Church family. So how do we do that? I'm glad you asked that. Let me give you some ideas real quick to wrap this up here this morning. First of all, here's one way that we do that. Stay into my business. That's the opposite of get out of my business, all right? Get out of my business, no. Stay into my business. Following Jesus is about relationships, right? Following Jesus is about relationships, right? Right. And one of the primary features of the early church was the way that they were involved in one another's lives. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Some years back, Howard Hendricks asked, How in the world did the early church fellowship without coffee and donuts? What is fellowship anyway, he asked. Well, this whole concept of fellowship means we're involved with each other's lives. One of the ways the early church did this, Acts chapter 2, verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You see, the church speaks about, the Bible speaks about the church as the body of Christ, and it says that every Christian is a part of that body. Can you imagine some part of the body suddenly deciding it doesn't want to? The liver saying, I just really don't like my location here. I really don't like being in such close quarters with the rest of you. I want to live independent from you. You can't do that and survive. The church is also compared to a family. Well, it's hard to be family if uh, members of the family (coughs) don't share their lives with each other. How could a church family consider itself a family unless its family members are involved with each other's lives? You know, when God asks Cain, where is your brother? And Cain replied, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? That was the wrong answer. The right answer is a different one. The correct answer is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. And that's how the early church worked. That's how we should work. I'm not ready yet to share a toothbrush with all of you. But as much as I am able, I will be involved in your life and ask you to be in mine. And I encourage you to make that kind of a commitment today. It's not going to happen from just coming here. This is part of it, Sunday morning worship time. But it's going to also require being involved In a small group, in disciple hour, in a ministry team of some kind, in some other way that you are developing a deeper relationship with some of these people who are, look at them, sitting around you here right now. It means we're going to be checking up on one another, especially during times of crisis. One of the ways to measure the strength of a church family is to answer the question, how much are they spending time with each other outside of the building? How often do families get together? How well do we really know each other? It can't happen without making an effort to be involved in others' lives. And I doubt that it's going to happen if you're here, but you never really have made a commitment to be a part of the church family. You're still holding yourself at arm's length. We must be involved in each other's lives. So stay in my business. All right, here's the second one, and that is I value you. One of the practical ways the early church demonstrated they needed each other was the way that they sacrificed personal ownership to take care of one another's needs. We looked at that, Acts 2.44. They were together and had everything in common. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. Those first Christians were saying to each other by doing this, I need you more than I need this stuff. They valued one another. And it wasn't just there in those very earliest days, but later on in the days of the church, they were, sending, uh, they were sharing their lives with Paul and his ministry by sending money to meet the needs of Christians around the world that it could get to. The Christians in Philippi sent an offering to the Christians in Judea during a time of famine. Now the world tells us relationships are a way that you get stuff. Not that we should value relationships ahead of wealth. Now, once in a while, we need to be reminded of those priorities, and once in a while, we need to, by our actions, say to one another, I value you more than stuff. Here's the third one, last one. Let's get together. Let's get together. What are the things that prevent people from getting close to each other? What are the things that we allow to creep into the scene and crowd out the good relationships God wants us to have? It's not a complete list, but the Bible talks about some of them. Gossip, slander, holding a grudge, pride, prejudice, personal taste, opinions, they're all things the Bible says don't fit along inside of the body of Christ. So if you're going to commit to needing me and I to you, then these are things that have to go. Instead, look what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, to the church, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. In chapter 12, he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. He says to the Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Sometimes that's uncomfortable, isn't it? Sometimes it involves going to somebody who has something against you, but they chose not to do the right thing and come to talk to you about it. And what you need to do for the good of the body is to go to that person. It would do this body good if today there's somebody who has something against a brother or sister and that person would go as Jesus commanded and be reconciled before you leave here today. You've got some work to do if that's you and it's not for you, it's for Jesus. It's for his body. It's because Jesus died for the sake of making the church be a place where people don't allow the enemy to interfere in their relationships. He died for the sake of changing that. We need each other. I read a story from Haddon Robinson. He said a man went to an asylum for the criminally insane and he was a bit surprised to find that there were only three guards there watching over a hundred inmates. And he said to one of the guards, aren't you afraid that the inmates will unite and overcome you and escape? And the guard said this, lunatics never unite. Locusts do. Christians should. If we don't, we don't know where our power is, Robinson says. Lunatics never unite. I suppose if we were lunatics, we would never be united. Wouldn't it be neat, though, if instead of that, people looked in at Central Christian Church and they said about us, there go those crazy Christians from Central Christian Church. They act like their lives depend on each other. No one who tries to join up with them gets left out. And they just act like they want more people to join in with them. That's crazy. All right, I'll take that. Just imagine it. Just imagine a community of believers who are all unashamed to say, I need you. And then they live like they really believe that. Just imagine that. Imagine a community of people where they're not afraid to rub elbows with each other. Who make sure that they meet each other's needs. Who are walking in the same direction with God's goals in front of them. Would you like to be a part of that? I sure want to be. You can be a part of that. Uh, That was Jesus' goal. When he came to the cross, it was that he would bring people together and through his cross bring them to God. So this morning, we're inviting you to come be a part of a church family. We're inviting you to be a member of a body. That isn't our invitation. That is what Jesus Christ has told us to do be reconciled to God I'm going to ask you please to stand up with me this time during our worship time is when we are going to say to God help us make good choices so that we respond to your word like we're supposed to do could that be the prayer on your heart right now please as we approach him if that means you need to begin a relationship with Jesus and you wonder how do I do that well his word makes it very clear you need to repent you need to be baptized you need to acknowledge that jesus christ is lord in your life and make him lord in your life from this day forward if you're ready to make that choice we would love to help you begin and to welcome you into the family of god let's pray father right now we ask you to work on our hearts to let your word do its work Thank you for the good work of Jesus who came to restore us to you despite our rebelliousness, our failures, making us right with you. Thank you. And Father, thank you for that kind of forgiveness that impacts the way we look at each other. We understand from what your word says that your purpose includes that we would be united in the way that we serve together, the way that we live with one another in this body. And so I pray today, Father, that you will help us give attention to relationships with each other and with you. Especially, Father, for those who are listening or who are watching this morning and considering they need to begin life in you. Please take away the things that are hindering that choice and Let today be the day that someone comes to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.